0: Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California.
1: All right, good morning and welcome to the Thursday Morning Report. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm speaking this morning uh, with author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, The Secret History of the American Empire, and uh, most recently Hoodwinked, which has just come out in paperback. His name is John Perkins. He's also written uh, several books uh, on uh, neo-shamanism, shape-shifting, and The World as You Dream It, two of those. Very prolific. Let me get him up. Uh, Good morning, John. Are you here?
2: I'm here. Can you hear me okay?
1: Yeah, you sound great. Well, how, how's it going this morning?
2: Great! I'm up off the coast of uh, Seattle. I live on an island up here, and 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 it's it's not raining this morning, and that's always nice.
1: Nice, yeah. We know how that feels here in Mendocino County for sure. <laughs> well, uh, why don't you just start by giving us a brief history of yourself?
2: Well, as from the title of my book, I was an I was an economic hitman back in the seventies, and I think it's fair to say that. Economic hitmen have created the world's first truly global empire, and the first that's been created primarily without the military. The way we work, well, we work many different ways, but perhaps the most generic is to say that we identify a country that has resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange huge loans to that country from organizations like the World Bank but the money never actually goes to the country. Instead, it goes to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in that country, like power plants and industrial parks, things that benefit a few wealthy families, as well as our own corporations, Um, but don't benefit the majority of the people who can't afford electricity, don't work in industrial parks because they don't hire many people, and yet the people of the country are left holding a debt that's so large they can't possibly repay it. So at some point, we go back and say, since you can't pay your debt, Sell your oil, or whatever the resource is, cheap to our oil companies uh, without any environmental or social regulations or restrictions. Or let us build a military base on your soil. Vote with us on the next critical United Nations vote. Something along those lines. In essence, they become part of our empire. And uh, in the few cases where we fail, the jackals go in and either overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. I talk in my books about how I failed with the democratically elected president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, and Omar Torrijos of Panama. I couldn't corrupt them. I couldn't get them to accept these conditions. And so both of them were assassinated. I, I, I didn't I didn't be assassinated. I I'd never did anything illegal. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were both taken out by CIA-sponsored uh, jackals. And in a few cases where the jackals also fail, like with Saddam Hussein in Iraq then as a final solution the military goes
1: in. Yeah, I mean this is the uh, I guess the shocking connection that you make in your book between the way uh, that these financial institutions work but that they're intimately connected with the uh, military-industrial complex.
2: Well I think it's fair to say, Doug, at this point the United States government, our military, the CIA, the big international banks including the World Bank and all of these organizations basically serve the interests of the big corporations, what I call the corporatocracy. Mm-hmm. And today we've really got a situation where uh, the, the, the world is ruled not by governments. Uh, we've seen that. Uh, ben La- uh, you know, it, 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 you know we, we, we've, we've taken out Bin Laden and everything continues to go on. It, it, but the, the world is really ruled by these big corporations, what I call the corporatocracy. The men and women who sit at the top of the corporations. Not a conspiracy. Uh, they don't have to get together. Most of them don't even know each other, but they're all driven by one single goal, which is to maximize profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And they will do everything in their power uh, to ensure that they keep maximizing those profits and they control governments, they use the CIA, the military, whatever to help them in that process.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you're describing here, I think, is a little bit of a different kind of foreign policy than what most Americans are used to hearing. Um, maybe you could use Panama as an example and how Bush ended up going into Panama. You talk about that a little bit in, in your book, uh, just as a, as a way that the military has been used to kind of uh, promote this corporatocracy over the years.
2: Panama is a very good example. There's a lot of them, but yeah, so the, so the chief of state of Panama was Omar Torrijos, a man I thought very, very highly of, a man with tremendous integrity and also a great deal of charisma. Uh, and I was sent down to Panama during the 70s, many, many different times, uh, to try to corrupt him, to try to bring him around, uh, to accepting uh, you know, these loans from us, and, and to re-renegotiating the Canal Treaty. So he neg- negotiated a Canal Treaty with, with Jimmy Carter. that gave the Canal back to the Panamanian people. Once Reagan came into office, he, he put a lot of pressure on Torrijos to go back and renegotiate it back out of that position. Uh, Torrijos wouldn't do this. Torrijos is also talking to the Japanese about them financing and basically controlling a, a new canal, a bigger canal than the existing one. We, we were extremely upset with that. Vecto Corporation played a huge role in trying to get rid of Torrijos because they wanted those contracts, not the Japanese. And, and a number of other things. Torrijos wouldn't bend. And for me, it was a very difficult situation. I really like Torrijos, and I respected his integrity. Yeah, my job was to get him to, to to corrupt him. And I also knew that if I failed in my job, something dire was going to very likely happen to him. We'd seen it happen to Arbenz and Guatemala, overthrown a CIA coup. Allende of Chile, overthrown a CIA coup. Lumumba of the Congo. Uh, Diem in Vietnam, Mossadegh, and Iran. We'd seen this time and time and time again. And so I knew that if... If Torrijos didn't bend, something dire was very likely to happen to him, and he knew it, too, but he didn't bend. And he, he, Jaime Roldos was assassinated in May of, 90, of 1981, and Torrijos called all of his closest friends and family together, and, and I know a lot of these people personally, people who are at this meeting, and he said, Hey, you know, Jaime's gone. He was taken up by the CIA. I'm next. But don't don't mourn it because I get the canal back in Panamanian hands and it's going to stay there. I've accomplished what I came here to accomplish. And less than three months later, in June, uh, he also was assassinated in almost the same identical way that Roldos of Ecuador had been assassinated. And then um, Noriega took over. And Noriega had been um, a CIA agent. He'd been in mm-hmm. the CIA that came out and. Congressional hearings that paid him several million dollars. So so we thought he was in our pocket, but he wasn't. He also uh, did not bend on the canal issue, bringing the School of the Americas back into Panama, or renegotiating with the Japanese. He wouldn't bend on these things. And so the first Bush sent the troops in, and we demolished a huge section of Panama City. And many, many innocent civilians were killed estimates are all over the place, but there were hundreds of thousands, we know that, that were killed, innocent people. Panama had no military. It never has. It has a National Guard, uh, but it has no military. And defenseless country, really. And we just went in, you know, our armed forces went in, big style, wiped out this country, basically. And it impacted everything in Latin America for many, many years. After That still has a big impact. Because when something like that happens to a country like that, it sends a message that the United States is brutal, the country to be feared and hated, and, and also, of course, it sends a message to leaders throughout Latin America, we, they better not mess with us. They better give in to the economic hitmen, because if they didn't, not only were they going to die, but their country was going to be badly burned, literally burned. Mm.
1: You know, can you talk a little bit about um, the way this corporatocracy controls the media? Because I remember when that happened, and uh, you know, we just all heard that he was a terrible drug dealer and he had to get taken out. They're not, they don't tell us what's really happening. So, I mean, especially as you uh, were going through becoming an economic hitman, and then you would see uh, these military actions occur as a direct uh, result maybe of some of the work that you were doing, and then you'd see what the U.S. media was saying about, about those events. Can you describe that?
2: Yeah. Um, well, let me first start by saying that <laughs> I, 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 I never knew Noriega personally, but what I knew of him I didn't like. And uh, he was not a Torrijos. host, and I'm not defending the man personally. I think uh, he was a, dr- a drug dealer, and the United States had used that as a way to open doors to get the drug cartels in Colombia. So he became okay. kind of a double agent in that uh, arena. Um, so a, a lot of the reports about Noriega's character, his he was a very excessive man in terms of his own drugs and alcohol and so on. A lot of that was true, but but the truth of why we went into Panama was totally the the, 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 the story of why we went into Panama. The official story was totally untrue. Where we said that, that Panama was a threat to our national security. Uh, that Americans in Panama were being brutally beaten and so on. Uh, that was pretty much fabricated. There were, there were a couple of beatings, but there's a lot of evidence that indicates that maybe our own people did the beating in order to get the publicity. Hmm. Um, in any case, Panama was never a threat in any way to us. Panama didn't even have a military. And the issue of the Panama Canal is, is rather a moot one because the fact of the matter is. We do control the canals legally. It's in Panamanian hands, and it's never been it's being it's being operated much more efficiently now than it ever was in our hands. And the, the records are clear on this: fewer accidents, fewer downtime, etc. They've done an exceptional job. The fact of the matter is, we have military bases all around. We have military bases in Colombia. We have them in California and throughout the United States. that can easily reach the canal. So, from a practical standpoint and a military standpoint, nobody can close down that canal. Uh, uh, from the outside, you can close it down from the inside uh, through by bombing a a, a a a dam, but that doesn't that's that's true where that the Americans control the Panamanians. Mm-hmm. So really, uh, there was no threat, there was no reason uh, to go into that country and do what we did, uh, except um, to, to set an example. And I always wondered though, if you want to take take out Noriega, there were a lot simpler ways to do it. You didn't have to destroy half a, a, a huge area of Panama City and a lot of innocent civilians. But I, 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 I spent a lot of time in Panama, and there was this constant rumor that kept coming up. I can't verify it. But the rumor was, there's an island, I can verify this, Contadora Island off the coast of Panama, where we used to take people, all, people like me used to take uh, government officials, U.S. politicians and others, and anything went on Contador. There were women, there was booze, there was drugs. It was all very quiet. There were yachts. You could fly in and out in private planes. There was a lot of incredible activity going on there. And under Torrijos, it was kept very quiet. The rumor was that when Noriega took over and he'd been head of the Secret Service in Panama, that he planted cameras around and that he had very incriminating footage of major U.S. politicians, including George Bush Jr. This is what the rumors were. And I've heard them from many people, some very credible sources. So they have a lot of credibility in, in a way, though I have to say I, I, I cannot substantiate them. Uh, and that, that, that Noriega was using this incriminating evidence to get his way in Washington. And that the reason that the city was bombed and firebombed, that one of the buildings that was totally destroyed, totally demolished, was the building where all these kinds of archives are kept. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Secret Service information, their files and all their microfilm and everything was in that building. And I do know that people who lived in that area after the bombing and this building's totally demolished, you saw US forces go in there and search through the rubble to make, you know, as if they were there to make sure that everything had been destroyed. It makes a lot of sense to me. I, I can't think of any other reason yeah. why we did such a major job. If, 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 if we were after Noriega, there's a lot of easier ways to get Noriega than to, yeah. than to destroy a, a large section of old Panama.
1: It is amazing to think that the military is used um, for these personal reasons or for the reasons, uh, you know, business or personal, uh, for the reasons that the corporatocracy has uh, rather than being used to protect the American people. Um, I think that's one of the shocking uh, uh, facts that you reveal in your book is that this is the military is not really there fighting for our freedom. It's fighting for these corporations uh, in order to to uh, garnish these cheap resources uh, all over the world.
2: That's true, Doug, and I'd, I'd, I'd go a step further and say the military is is there is making us a lot less safe. Yeah, because it's people around the world resent it. As I travel and, and I just came back from Istanbul, I was in China recently, as in Iceland recently. I spent a lot of time in Latin America, as you know, um, and and I constantly hear about how much people fear us and and hate us for this. My friends in Latin America, and I'm friends with the administration of Rafael Correa, president of Ecuador, a guy with a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Illinois. He's Ecuadorian, but he understands our system. And, you know, I hear from these heads of state and, and their their top people, they say things like, well, we'd much rather deal with the Chinese than you in the United States. If we're going to take loans in the future, we'd rather take them from the Chinese. And a major reason for that is that the Chinese have no military presence anywhere except in China, and you know the, the, the area that they've always considered to be theirs, unfortunately, that includes Tibet and Taiwan. But they don't have a military presence in Africa, or the Middle East, or Latin America, and we do in all of those. Places. And and it's a huge thorn, and it, it creates it creates terrorism, and it creates unrest. So our military, actually, I think, is causing a lot of instability in the world, and it's creating a very dangerous world. It's not making us any safer; it's doing the opposite.
1: All right, John. Let me take a moment to do a station break here. Uh, the time is now 9:19. You're listening to the Thursday morning report right here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. This morning, I'm speaking with John Perkins. He's the author of *Confessions of an Economic Hitman*, uh, among many others. Um, John, can let's go. Uh, and, and back it up and talk a little bit more about your personal story. Your books uh, were written in this narrative where you were really kind of telling the story of your life. It, it, they weren't uh, super factual, although there were a lot of facts in there, but you kind of took this personal perspective on it, which I appreciated. Um, but I wanted to ask you about how you got involved uh, as being an economic hitman. Tell the story of, of how all of that got started.
2: Well, yes. I, I, when I was still in business school in Boston, I was looking for a way uh, to not go to Vietnam. I didn't believe in the Vietnam War. And I was married at the time to a woman whose father was very high up in the, the Department of the Navy. And one of his best friends was very high up in the National Security Agency and uh, suggested to me that the National Security Agency could get me could get me a draft permit. Uh So I went for interviews, very extensive, a couple of days of psychological testing, including a lie detector test, and and apparently they concluded that, <laughs> I guess they concluded that I'd make a good economic hitman. They offered me a job to go into their training program. Um, but then I, I heard a Peace Corps recruiter, and, and I was very intrigued. I always wanted to go to the Amazon. I would always wanted to live with indigenous people. And this recruiter was talking about that. So I called this friend of the National Security Agency up, the friend of my wife's father, and he very much encouraged me to go in the Peace Corps and learn another language and learn to survive in, in the Amazon. He said, that would be a great experience for you, and then you can come to work for us. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and I spent three years in the Andes and Amazon. Amazing experience. Changed my life. I've written five books about that before I ever wrote Confessions of the Economic Hitman. And while I was there, my last year there, uh, the senior vice president from the company I ended up working for came down and recruited me, and it turned out that he was in the, you know, the Army Reserve a Colonel and the liaison between that business and the National Security Agency. So when I took the job at the company called Charles T. Maine as economist, and I soon became chief economist and a part owner in the company. It was a partnership. Um, very soon I was approached by this woman, whose name is Claudine, who I describe in some detail in mm-hmm. the book. And uh, she really told me what my real job was. Uh, that it was to to do the things I described earlier, setting up loans in these countries to corrupt uh, government officials in these countries, that that was my true job. And uh, she knew things about me that the only way she could have known them were from these tests I'd taken at the National Security Agency. I never was actually a government employee. I was was employed in the private sector, which is pretty much the way it's done these days because it it relieves the government of responsibility if, if I get found out. But our contracts in our consulting business all came, most of them came either through the government or the World Bank, USAID, Treasury Department. So the government was paying my company, which was paying me, but officially I was not a government employee. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, this is one of the things that really blew me away as I was reading your books, was this connection to the NSA. I mean, and that's a really... uh, a direct link between the military and the military-industrial complex, and then these uh, these financial shenanigans that that you were pulling off as an economic hitman. Um, it, it just it it shows that it's a concerted foreign policy effort, basically by by the U.S. government and the U.S. military, to make this happen, to go and get cheap resources, uh, and to put other sovereign nations uh, basically uh, under a kind of a debt slavery. Uh, in order to get these concessions out of them. It's just very shocking.
2: Yes, and and it's real. And I think, Doug, one of the things that we all have to sit up and take notice of here is that it's a huge threat to democracy. I I actually have to say I I think there's a lot of reasons to question whether we're a democracy or not in this country these days. And I say this with great remorse. my, My family goes back more than 300 years in the United States my, my, I'm on both sides, and we fought in the American Revolution. I'm a very, very loyal American. Why I do write these books and, and say these things is because I want to get back on track to what the real beliefs of this country. And I think it's 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 a terrible threat that most of our citizens don't understand what's really going on in our foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a democracy is built on the premise that you have an informed electorate.
1: Right. I mean, how, how can you vote when you have no idea what's really going on?
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's one of the reasons I write these books and I'm on the radio with you and I'm on a constant speaking tour because I, I want people to understand this and, and, and then in understanding it to demand change. And incidentally, it's happening. You know, these Occupy movements are Helping to enlighten people that we're becoming more and more aware, and it's it's happening around the world.
1: Let me ask you a, a question about uh, while you were working as an economic hitman, how did people justify it? Uh, you kind of write that. Uh, did you feel like it was greed, or or this notion that we were fighting communism? I mean, that's one of the strange things. It's almost like this American imperialism uh, takes this veil of fighting some enemy, but it's really just the typical uh, imperialism. Um, but can you describe how the other people that you worked with maybe maybe try to justify their behavior?
2: Yes, before I do, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your line of questioning. It. These are very thoughtful questions. I do a lot thank of research, and they're not usually this, this deep, and I really, really appreciate it. I like to go into these details.
1: Excellent. Thanks a lot.
2: Uh, thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, um, you know, what I did... This business of arranging large loans and building big infrastructure projects is something that's taught in business schools. It was then, and it is now, and the World Bank still says it's the way to increase gross domestic product to help economies grow. And in fact, statistically, you can show that it does. So we could produce all kinds of econometric models that show that if you invested a billion dollars into a power grid, for example, or $10 billion or whatever in a country to produce electricity, the GDP, the gross domestic product, would go up over the next 20 years. As a result, you could show a direct correlation statistically, and and so we could justify this, and I could justify what I was doing because, in, as a classically trained economist, it was the right thing to do. But and perhaps, probably because I'd been in the peace corps, I'd been on the other end—the people that get that get screwed in this process. Right. <laughs> I understood fairly quickly on in that. It was a lie. I mean, that, that yes, the economic growth occurred, but that in most of these countries, the only people benefiting were the very rich, and in fact, the majority of the people don't really even make the statistics very much. They they they, they barter, you know, and they mm-hmm. and they shop in local markets that don't ever make the statistics. None, none of those exchanges you ever get on the book. Right. So this economic growth that was happening was 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 with the big industries and the growth of banks in the cities and big commercial establishments. And so what it was really saying is that the wealthy were getting more wealthy and more powerful. And I could see the poor were getting poorer. The middle class was dropping out. It was becoming impoverished. And and we saw this time after time after time. So I saw all this happening, and yet we still teach it because you can still show statistically. And, of course, it works to the advantage of the big corporations. They make huge fortunes off all of this. And so do the few wealthy families in the countries. If they go along, if they play the game, the game that Torrijos and, and, and Roldos refused to play, but, but almost everybody else did, these families become very, very rich. And there is the other side. My first assignment was in Indonesia, which is, this is 1971. We thought, we knew, we're pretty sure we're going to lose Vietnam at that point. We were losing Vietnam. It was a domino theory, in effect, that if Vietnam fell, the next would be Cambodia and Laos and on down to Indonesia, so part of our thing was also that we were going to stop Communism by injecting this money in there, and and Indonesia was wavering. It was going back and forth, Sukarno, Suharto, these two presidents who changed places, there was this conflict, so we were afraid Indonesia was going to go Communist, Indonesia had oil resources they just discovered, they had the largest Muslim population of any country in the world, so there were a lot of reasons to try to bring Indonesia into our fold
1: Mm mm-hmm um when what do you think now about uh, terrorism uh you just had a chapter i think in hoodwinked about the isms uh and so now we have terrorism it used to be communism is terrorism the the new excuse to be going in and and snag these resources in the same way
2: well it is and uh, amazingly we're falling for it because there is no such thing as terrorism An ism is it means that there's a whole lot of people around the world or or some someplace that that follow a certain set of ideals. Communism is an ism. Catholicism is an ism. Socialism is an ism. Capitalism is an ism. But terrorism isn't an ism, because I've met and interviewed members of FARC in Colombia and Somali pirates and, and al-Qaeda people in the Middle East, and, and none of them share common values or even common goals. But what they, The only thing they share is that they all come from desperation and, and they feel that they've been treated unjustly. So the peasants in Colombia, their lands have been destroyed by hydroelectric projects flooding their lands or oil companies destroying their lands, and they they can't feed their families. So they take to uh, extortion, kidnapping. They they, They take to trying to get money however they can. They don't know any other way. The Somali pirates are fishermen whose waters were fished clean by foreign fishing vessels, and they protested for 22 years to the United Nations without any satisfaction at all. Their kids are starving. So they do what they, have, they feel they have to do. And, of course, once a guy's ridden on a, on a boat, he may not even ha- have a gun himself. He may not even do anything. But once that boat has gone out and threatened a major ship, he's suddenly he's a pirate. He'll never live that down. So we've got these acts of terror around the world, yes. But that's not an ism. Mm-hmm. We, there's no war on global terrorism. There's no such thing as global terrorism. There are starving, desperate people around the planet. And these people become subject to fanatics. So ben Laden was a wealthy guy, and he was a fanatic. and there'll always be fanatics. Just like, I suspect it's like there'll always be rapists, there'll always be people with a few screws loose in their, in their heads, you know. That, and we, we, we can't avoid that. There's always going to be people with chemical imbalances. But they don't get a following unless there's desperation, and people are feeling that they're being treated unjustly. And the terrorists I've met, every one of them says, I don't want to be a terrorist. This is an incredibly dangerous job. Right. Being a fisherman's dangerous enough, but this is a lot worse. I don't want to do this, but i got to feed my family. And I think you know, the message for us is that if we want to get rid of acts of terror around the world, then let's get rid of poverty. Let's get rid of desperation. Let's get rid of injustice. Let's get rid of the causes of terrorism. Let's recognize there will always be fanatics that we'll have to deal with somehow, but you'll never have a following unless people are really dissatisfied and desperate.
1: Right. Uh, you call this system, uh, basically you call it the predatory capitalist system. Can you uh, kind of describe what that is and, and maybe how it was put in place? And also, I, I kind of want to go, um, you talk a little bit about Milton Friedman, who was certainly uh, these economists that were used to justify um, the actions that a lot of these corporations have taken, uh, but at the same time, I just wanted to bring up. I think that uh, even in Milton Friedman's writings, he was presuming that there was some rule of law and there were there were individual property rights. Uh, so when these corporations go in uh, to these third world countries, especially, they're not giving anybody property rights. They're just dumping, on, you know, they're dumping toxic waste on their land, and they're not paying any reparations for it. Um, so, uh, you know, and I just wanted to get your opinion on this. What do you think is the difference between, say, uh, the ideal capitalist society or the ideals uh, of that notion or, or the ideals of socialism or, or whatnot, and then the difference between that and what is r- really going on, which is what you describe as predatory capitalism?
2: Wow. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. What do we have, Doug? Uh, <laughs> right. Well, let me, yeah, let's start with ca- Predatory capitalism. When I went to business school in the late 60s, we were Keynesians, John Maynard Keynes, and mm-hmm. um, I was taught that a good CEO makes a decent rate of return for his investors. But he also, and more importantly, he takes good care of his employees, gives them health insurance and retirement pension funds, and he takes good care of his customers and his suppliers. And he's a really good community citizen. The corporation has to be a good community citizen, pays taxes, and goes beyond that to help build schools or whatever it does. Uh, But that all changed in the 70s when I was an economic hitman, And then in 1980, when Reagan became president, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister of England and many other world leaders, embraced this Milton Friedman idea, Chicago School of Economics, which says that, no, no, none of that matters. The only responsibility of business is to maximize profits. Regardless of the social and environmental costs, mm-hmm. and every president of the United States, Democrat and Republican alike, has, has embraced that since. It's a very sick idea of how to do business, and and you're correct. I mean, Friedman went beyond that. He did. He he, he was you know he was more philosophical than that. But mm-hmm. but the mantra that was bought by business leaders around the world, the big multinational leaders, was our only job is to maximize profits. Mm-hmm. Should do everything to make that happen,
1: and so that's and that's at the expense, obviously, of the individual rights of of the people that they're doing business with.
2: Right. The, 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 a corollary or a subset of that goal was there shouldn't be any regulations, minimize regulations, mm-hmm. in business because that gets in the way of making profits. So, you know, you, there shouldn't be any social standards in terms of health insurance or pensions, get rid of all of that because that gets in the way of making profit. There shouldn't be any environmental restrictions because that gets in the way, in a way of making profit. And, of course, we're hearing that all the time these days. Like, let's not worry about climate change. Let's just get the economy back on track. And if we try to protect the, you know, the environment too much, it's just too, too costly. We can't afford to do that. So in the, in the third core, the third premise is that um, everything should be run by private business. So privatize what we used to consider to be public assets like uh, water and sewage systems, uh, energy systems, uh, electricity systems, and schools and jails. And even the military today is becoming more and more privatized. We've got more mercenary, private mercenary soldiers in Afghanistan today than we do U.S. soldiers. So, And, and what this system has done, what I call this predatory capitalism, because it, it it it's predatory on anything. that doesn't. It isn't about making profit. It, it takes wipes out anything else, gobbles it up, chews it up, and spits it out. And it's created a failed system. The only way we can look at it, Doug, is, is a world where less than five percent of us living in the United States consume almost thirty percent of the world's resources, while half the world starves or is on the verge of starvation. The only way you can define that is as a failure. It is not a model. It can't be repeated in China or India or Latin America or Africa. They may want to replicate what we've done, but they can't. The numbers don't add up. You need five planets Mm -hmm. to make that happen without any people. Five planets just like ours without people. We've got to admit that what we've done and what what this predatory capitalism has done is created a, a mammoth total failed world system, and it's falling apart right now, which is good. And out of that, we need to create something that truly works.
1: Absolutely. All right, the time is now 9.36. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. This morning, I'm speaking with John Perkins. He is the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, among many others. Uh, I would like to ask you to tell one story, because when I found out that you actually worked on the what you call the the Saudi Arabia money laundering affair, I, I found that so enlightening because there was a, a hole in the history there for me that I had known that something was up. You know, I, I figured that uh, uh, Nixon took us off the gold standard in the early 70s, and then uh, as, I, as I understand it, the Bush, uh, Bush senior went over there and cut a deal with the Saudis uh, so that they would buy their oil in dollars, which essentially put the dollar onto the Saudi Arabian oil standard. Uh, instead of the gold standard, because we needed that resource to to back the dollar, can you describe uh, your part in that in that whole affair?
2: Yeah, I, I actually played a pretty critical part. I was, I was I was I was in the trenches.
1: Yeah, it's a wild story.
2: <laughs> well, there, there was the OPEC oil embargo, where the OPEC countries did not like what we were our attitude toward Palestine and and Egypt and in and, and with the and, and with the Israelis, and so they boycotted us. They shut down the oil supply and. Some of your listeners uh, may remember that there were huge, long, long lines at the gas station, and we were afraid there was going to be another recession as a result. So the Treasury Department, very high up people in the Treasury Department, came to me and other economic hitmen and said, we, we can't let this happen anymore. We have got. To, we can't be blackmailed by OPEC. We've got to stop this. And we all knew that the only leverage point we had was the House of Saud, the royal family in, in Saudi Arabia, because they controlled OPEC. They controlled the majority of the oil, and, they, and they, they they controlled OPEC, and they they also were corrupt and corruptible. So off to Saudi Arabia I go with four or five guys who work for me, and and to make a long story short, we we ended up cutting this deal with the House of Saud, which basically said that uh, they, they they would only buy oil in dollars, nor the currency. And as you said in '71, uh, we were t- we were taking off the the gold that Nixon mm-hmm. took. Gold standard, so the dollar is kind of floating free. It doesn't, it's losing its power, but now it's suddenly powerful again because you can only buy oil for dollars, and that makes a huge difference. And and also that the Saudis agreed that they would reinvest most of their petrodollars into U.S. government securities, Treasury bonds. The interest from those bonds would be used by the Treasury Department to hire U.S. corporations. To build up Saudi Arabia, to 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 build petrochemical complexes and highways, and in fact whole cities out of the desert It would be a boondoggle for U.S. corporations. It would also westernize Saudi Arabia, sort of bring them into our fold by by really westernizing them and making them very dependent on our form of materialism. And they agreed to that, and we did, we've done that. And they also agreed not to charge any higher price for oil. That, that they would let our oil companies determine what the price of oil should be, and in exchange, uh, we agreed to keep the House of Saud in power as long as they kept their agreement, and we've we've all done this. It's one mm-hmm. of the reasons that we went after Saddam Hussein when he started moving troops into Kuwait because next was going to be Saudi Arabia. And We had a slightly different but somewhat similar deal with Kuwait. So, um, but this was a mammoth uh, agreement. It, it really set the tone for the next 30, 40 years, mm-hmm. and. and in economic uh,
1: politics
2: yeah I mean we tried to do the same thing with Saddam Hussein after that mm -hmm. he was the second largest oil producer in OPEC at the time and he didn't buy Uh, he wouldn't go along with it which is one of the reasons he ultimately got taken out because he would not he would not agree to such a deal
1: yeah I understand uh, that before the invasion he was threatening to start selling his oil uh, in the euro have you heard that?
2: oh absolutely yeah in the euro, maybe even you, you know Chinese yen. It was, yeah, uh, it's things other than the dollar. And of course, Qaddafi was also threatening to create what he called the gold dinar as uh, his, his own currency that, that the African nations could use, and that right. they would they would sell oil for that. So there's a history here. Whenever leaders uh, start to talk down, to start to talk about selling oil or anything other than dollars, they tend to be taken out pretty. You're,
1: quick. you're looking at an invasion, yeah. <laughs> Um, can you talk uh, just a little bit about Libya? It seems, uh, it seems. Uh, I mean, were they just taking out Gaddafi for the oil, and it also sounds like they kicked the Chinese out of there. So, is there a, really something going on uh, between the U.S. and the Chinese uh, vying for these resources that are left in the world
2: now? Yeah, it's it's well, Libya. First of all, I think. It, it, it was somewhat about oil, but um, it was more about the currency thing we just talked about. Libya's oil wasn't all that significant to mm-hmm. us. But but if Libya had set up this new monetary system where people could buy and sell oil, it wouldn't have to be Libyan oil. It could have gone through Libyan hands, but still it could have been oil from anywhere in the world. This was a huge threat, the idea of an oil burst, an oil exchange that, that didn't use dollars. Huge threat. And also... The fact that Qaddafi that was talking about essentially creating a rival to our central bank system, our Federal Reserve System, uh, for all of Africa by using this currency. And once again, whenever any country sort of uh, defy the Federal Reserve System, the banking system that we prefer, mm-hmm. uh, we go after them. And so I, I think really what, what Libya was about was taking out a leader that we saw as, as threatening our our very banking system and, and currency system on a, on a large scale and opening the door for a landslide of that to happen. So, Not only was taking him out putting an end to that immediate threat, but it also serves notice on other leaders. The Iranians are looking very carefully at this now as we're making ways possibly to invade Iran. Mm-hmm. But Iran has also said they would like to open an oil exchange that doesn't use dollars. and And knowing that we did what we did in Libya and in Iraq it certainly has to make the Iranians uh, take notice.
1: I imagine so. All right, um, let's talk a little bit about your most recent book that's now coming out in paperback called Hoodwinked, where you kind of describe how the system, well, you do describe how the system is, uh, the way I like to put it, coming home to roost. Now we're seeing that this kind of, uh, this debt-based uh, way of, of extracting resources from third world countries seems to be uh, hitting home, and now they've basically created a uh, um, population of Americans that are debt slaves to this same system, and, and we're hearing the same thing going on in Europe. Can you describe how you've seen this system that you worked with in the 70s that started uh, as a foreign policy but now is coming in and becoming domestic policy? Yeah, it's
2: uh, you know, it, it has what. It goes around, comes around. In a way, we in the United States sort of watched this going on in the world, and we didn't really understand it, and we just kind of were very lethargic and let it happen. And now it's come to, to us, and now we're beginning to wake up. But it's it's a very similar system on many, many levels. And let me just say one that is, that's pretty easy to understand. So the banks went out and convinced people who could afford a $300,000 house this a few years ago instead buy a $500,000 house. And then they did this very actively. It's, it's very much like we, what we did on a much larger scale in these uh, developing countries, and to accept a loan that they can't repay. And But the, the banks would say to these people, well, this $500,000 house, you may have to tighten your belt a little bit in the next couple of years, but we'll give you a balloon payment. We'll make it easier on you. And then in a few years, your $500,000 house will be worth a million dollars, so you're building equity. But the fact of the matter was the house wasn't worth $500,000. And when the market fell, fell out, uh, it was maybe worth 200000 So these people are paying a debt on 500000 on a house that's only worth 200000 And the banks go back in and repossess. Or they try, or they help the people. Maybe they restructure, but they're more likely to repossess and re- repackage the whole deal and sell it off to some developer. So they've got a double whammy here. They've, it's amazing. And at the same time, the people who have taken on this debt now maybe they've lost their house. They're not. The theory is they're not likely to take to the streets. Maybe some of them have. Maybe mm-hmm. some of them defy the theory. But the idea is that if you're in deep debt, whether you're a country or a human being or an individual, you uh, you you kowtow. You, you want to put food on your plate. You don't want to do anything to jeopardize your family. So you're 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 a good boy or girl. You you follow the rules. Right. You try to get some new loan. You try to get a new job. And that's the idea here. You you put people in, in, in this situation. And I think we're waking up to that, and that's why we're occupying.
1: Mm-hmm. I have heard that throughout history, most of the time, what you find is that these uh, democratic revolutions occur when there's a, a solid middle class, and people actually have kind of like the free time to have a revolution, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So... I- uh, anyway, maybe that is one of the reasons why uh, they like they just keep us in debt, so we, we don 't have that time to be able to uh, to, to question what 's really going on um,
2: at some point Doug, the people get get it so we 've been living in a situation that 's very much like feudal Europe back in the Middle ages, so you know you have the lord of the castle and a few knights, and then outside the castle walls you get the, what we call the bourgeoisie all the other people the ninety nine percent and they're being told you don't own the land. The Lord owns the land, but you can you can live on it and farm it. But you got to give eighty percent of everything you produce to the, to the castle. And if you don't, uh, the soldiers from the neighboring castle will come over, and we, and we won't bother to defend you. They'll they'll burn your village and rape your women and pillage. And and these people fell for that. And it's, we're very much in that situation today. We're you know we're being told with people with walkie talkies hiding in caves in the Himalayas are. A huge threat to us, rather than that we're our, our own corporations are our biggest threat. But uh, it, so, but back in the Middle Ages, then there was a rebellion, and you know we, we had a whole new set of rules that came up, uh, and, and you know the, the Magna Carta, and and people began to get it. There were Robin Hoods that emerged, and philosophers that emerged, and so we we, we went to the leaders and said, "You've got to sign a new deal with us," and. There was this historical movement in this direction of democracy and, and the voice of the people. And, it, you know, it, it came up through the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And I think during a good share of my lifetime, and, and after World War II in the 50s and 60s, we were really moving more and more in that direction. You, Kennedy was symbolic of that, and, and Johnson's Great Society. And then along comes this whole new concept of the Milton Friedman idea of maximizing profits and corporations, Begin to take more and more power, and so we really, since the 70s and 80s, we've really reverted back to this incredible feudal system. But again, I think the people are getting it. It's like we're at a new time for a, magna, a new kind of Magna Carta. We're getting it. We're 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 rioting outside the castle walls. We're beginning to chip away at the stones. There's Robin Hoods emerging, and Maid Marian's mm-hmm. and so so we're very much at, at a time like that it's 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 incredible how we how we we did regress from I think a, a, an upward march toward a more democratic system and then suddenly it, it collapsed and the big corporations took over it. but we believed that we were still living in this democracy we we, we didn't see that the corporations were changing everything that they were taking over our democracy, that they were stealing it up from under us. and now we're seeing it and and we're reacting. and it's a very, very important that we do that that we take we take our economy back, we take our country back, we take the world back. And understand that the marketplace really is a democracy itself. That these corporations are totally beholden to us. They only thrive because we buy the goods and services. And so ultimately, every time we buy something or choose not to, we're casting a vote, which is probably a more important vote than the one we cast every two years in the in the polls or every four years. I think we really need to understand that these corporations are very, very vulnerable. And we can force them to change. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, John, we've got about ten minutes left in the program, and I and I definitely want to start focusing on the solutions. But I also want uh, I wanted you to describe for us your connection with uh, uh, indigenous consciousness and indigenous spirituality, and how you developed that over the years, because. Uh, that's part of the, uh, it's just a fascinating part of your story that you've really kind of experienced both ends of the spectrum. You, you've you worked uh, in the trenches as an economic hitman, but you've also worked with uh, indigenous populations all over the world. Uh, so can you talk about how they have affected your way of thinking?
2: Yes, I'd love to, Doug. And incidentally, in case we do run out of time, I'd just like to encourage people to subscribe to my newsletter mm-hmm. at johnperkins.org. They have to fill in their email address. It comes up about twice a month. But it continues the dialogue, and they can, they can get feedback to me. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, at economic underscore at hitman. And so I'd like to keep in touch with your listeners. Um, yeah, the indigenous people have had a huge impact. So I didn't go in the National Security Agency after college. I went in the Peace Corps, and I lived deep, deep in the Amazon with hunters and gatherers, with Shuar, and the Achua, and then up in the Andes with the Quechua people. And it had a profound impact on me to see the way that they related to the world and each other. And amongst other things, um, they will tell you that if any member of their tribe is destitute or sick or lacking in anything that is humanly possible to provide, then the whole tribe is suffering. So they don't let that happen. Nobody is left behind. And that's a very, very important concept that we need to learn here that as long as there's any suffering of any human being or any sentient being on this planet, we're all in trouble, and we need to fix it. And, and uh, so you know, I had this three years experience with these indigenous people. And then I became a new, uh, chief economist, was my official title at this consulting firm. I travel around the world and and I would take time off a week, two weeks a month, if I could. In every country that I was in, whether it was working with the Bedouin in Iran, living with them, or the Buginese people up on Sulawesi in Indonesia, or, or, or wherever I was, I would I would seek out these indigenous cultures, and I'd been I'd been inducted into shamanic uh, traditions in several Latin American cultures, hmm. and then because I kind of spoke that language, which is similar around the world in indigenous cultures, the the role of the shaman, a person who journeys. Into the subconscious or the greater collective conscious, and receives information there to help help people, uh, help 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 change things on the planet to make it a better place for his people and, and animals and plants. They all share that, and and so I would take time and work with these people around the world, and it was huge. It had a huge impact on me. I think it's probably why I got it after a while. That what we would, what I was doing, this whole economic. Uh, scheme that we had was only serving the rich and wasn't doing what the World Bank Center was doing, which was ending poverty around the world. It was doing the opposite. And I think a lot of other people who were doing similar jobs to me as economic hitmen never did get it because they they couldn't see it from the other side. I could. Also, the shamanic perspective allowed me to see that we can change all this. They have a concept. The world is as you dream it. Give energy to any dream and it will materialize. So we now need to give energy to creating a new economic uh, system on this planet. And, you know, it comes out of the indigenous teachings. And as you know, I'm one of the co-founders, along with Bill and Lynn Twist of the Pachamama Alliance. Uh, People can look that up at Pachamama.org and DreamChange.org. So these organizations that really are working hard to change the paradigm, to change the dream, uh, to a more spiritually fulfilling one, a more sustainable one, and socially just one.
1: Uh, There's one story from, uh, I think it's the the history of the American Empire, where you described, I I believe it was during the point in your life when you were a a consultant uh, for a firm, and you went, and I want to say Guatemala, I'm not exactly sure, but you described meeting with this family member, one of the the rich families, uh, and um, you were going to go out to look at a geothermal plant. And the, the security that this guy had to have was just through the roof. He had like four guys fully armed, checking the car, starting the car before the guy got in. <laughs> and then you were driving to the geothermal plant and, and you realized that the Mayan people were definitely not going to appreciate this because of the, uh, the spiritual relationship that they have with these, um, with, with these thermal springs. Uh, so can you kind of d- discuss, well, will you discuss what is going through your mind as you're working as this consultant, but at the same time you, you're that familiar with, uh, the local spirituality and the indigenous people.
2: Yes, I was, it was, I felt very compromised because I was, I was on the board of a nonprofit at the time that was helping Mayan people to develop microcredit facilities. This was in the, um, early nineties. And, uh, And and I was also sent down as a consultant to Stone and Webster, this big engineering firm uh, in Boston, New York, uh, to look at developing this geothermal plant with this local uh, Guatemalan. It was Guatemalan family that was very, very rich and and, and owned a lot of land. And the the Mayans hated these people because they they had exploited their Mayan laborers. They owned big uh, uh, pineapple and, and banana and other kinds of plantations like that. They had for many decades a couple of centuries even and so yeah they had to have this incredible protection it, it was it was more than four men i think there were like there were two cars mm-hmm. each yeah. one ahead of us and one behind us each one with like four men and then two guards in the car that we were in and they were everything was bulletproof and and it was it was ironic to me that here i was on the one hand working with the mayans and on the other hand now here i am with their enemy and but what what was i think it would turned out well because What I realized when we looked at this site was this was a sacred site to the mines, that they would, you know, this is not a place to build a power plant. So I went back to Boston and said, you know, you don't want to get involved in this project because you're going to have a lot of bad publicity. It's going to be just going to be really, really bad. So the project ultimately was nixed. It was shot down because of that. So in a way, I felt I'd done my job, but I'd done it from this position that felt like a huge compromise to me also. It was one of those things that really, made me understand that I, I had to start writing about these issues. I had to write a book like Confessions of an Economic Kid, I had to expose what was really going on.
1: Yeah, very good. Um, as someone who has had so much experience with, with different indigenous cultures, uh, and you kind of mentioned before that there are um, similarities among all of them, which kind of lends, I think, an, uh, an objective truth. Uh, I think the Western mind has a hard time understanding indigenous con- consciousness because it's not uh, the rational mind the way ours is, and that they, they, you know you can't prove that it it works or it exists. But then when you see the same you know different tribes from all over the world discovering the same things, then you got to think, well, huh, maybe there's something to this, and and so I wanted you to talk about uh, you know I think a lot of us a lot of the listeners have heard about the the Mayan myth about 2012 but uh, you described in your speech the other night that you have you found this myth in many cultures around the world. So uh, can you talk about what that is and maybe maybe uh, talk about the eagle and the condor myth that you mentioned the other night?
2: Yeah, how much time do we have?
1: Uh, I guess about three minutes, actually, so not too long.
2: Okay. Sorry. <laughs> indigenous culture I've worked in, Doug, and, and, that, and I've worked in, with indigenous cultures, lived with them on every continent where they exist, which doesn't include Antarctica, but every other one. And they all have prophecies. Everyone that I know has prophecies that we have entered this time now for the potential for the human race to evolve and to change, to shape-shift and to evolve into higher, higher consciousness. And the, the 2012 prophecy of the Mayans is very much about that. It's, it, it's an optimistic prophecy. It's not a doomsday prophecy. It says if we don't do these things, maybe there will be a doomsday. But all these prophecies say that we have the potential right now and that every one of your listeners, every one of us was born into this time because we're part of all that. The eagle and the condor may be, in, in fact, uh, in a way, the, the, the most concise way of expressing this. It comes out of the Amazon and Andes, maybe 3,000 years ago, it was first voice. We don't know for sure, but we know it's very old. And even way back then, it said that back in the midst of history, human societies would take two different routes one would be the root of the eagle the root of the brain, the root of the mind, the root of the science, the root, what you call the root of rationalization, ration, and maybe the male root. And the, then the other part of society would take the root of the condor, the heart, passion, intuition, emotion, the female root. And then in the fourth Pachakuti, Pachakuti is a 500-year interval, in the fourth Pachakuti which would begin about 1500, the two would come back together and clash. The ego would nearly drive the condor into extinction. Of course, we know that happened after Columbus. Mm. He goes on to say that that in the fifth Pachacuti, 500 years later, about the year 2000, the opportunity would arise for them to stop clashing, for the eagle and the condor to soar together into one sky, to dance, to mate, and to create an offspring that would be an evolved human consciousness. And so we're at that time now. And what this is really saying is we have the potential today to bring the male and the female together, to bring the heart and the mind together, the intuitive and the scientific, bring them together and allow and move, rise up into this higher consciousness, which tells us that we're all here living on a very fragile space station. But unlike the one our astronauts built, this one doesn't have any shuttles. We can't get off. So we've got to be sustainable. There's no debate. If the species isn't sustainable, it goes extinct. So we have to become sustainable, and we need to emphasize social justice for all people, and we need to emphasize that everybody needs to thrive, there can be no starving uh, people on this planet, there can be no desperate people, Well, we're all desperate and starving in our own way. And so that's this new consciousness that we're rising into, and I feel it's really, really happening. You know, we're we're seeing as our our people, the condor and Eagle of the world are embracing each other for the first time. Beginning in the 90s, things really started to come together. People in this country started to really be interested in shamanism and indigenous cultures and take workshops, like ones that I teach, at places like Omega and Esalen, etc.
1: All right, John, do you think you could give your, uh, your contact information again? I'm afraid we're out of time, but that was uh, awesome. Nice to end on a positive note there.
2: JohnPerkins.org and uh, Twitter at economic underscore hitman, and I'm on Facebook a fan page. Love to keep in touch with your people.